0: Welcome to this episode of Don't Sell Yourself Short with me, Simon Lund. Today, I'm joined by Ian Farrell um, of Double Eleven, and we take a fascinating journey across the games industry, talking about sales. We touch on his early days as a contributor to magazines such as GameSpot, when we were both readers of the likes of ST Format. We cover an amazing array of topics, going through Polaroids, Brita filters, loot boxes in games, the controversy surrounding that, the cost shift in game pricing, Amazon's two pizza rule, Jeff Minter of Larmatron fame, Nintendo's Blue Ocean strategy, Ian's grandma buying iPads, and of course Ian gives us a sales tip at the end of the podcast. Really enjoyable, it was fascinating to listen to someone so passionate about what they do, and I hope you enjoy it too. So hello to Ian.
1: Hi, hi Simon, how's it going?
0: It's going okay. Um, We're completely gloss over the fact I've just had some technical glitches and obviously you can edit all of that out completely and no one will ever know.
1: Oh absolutely, it's seamless.
0: <laughs> well thank you for joining me on the podcast, I appreciate your time firstly.
1: No problem, it's a pleasure.
0: And you're a little bit of a sort of podcast veteran, or is that stretching it a little bit too far?
1: No, no, I think I think a veteran. I mean, I've been on a few and I've, I've recorded my own, but I think I'm a fan of the medium. Um, it's a, Radio and podcasts are a phenomenal medium, and I love them. I love that they exist.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I, personally, I don't know about you, but I, I tend to listen to a lot of mine either in the car or just before I go to sleep. Well, I mean, I don't know if you, you are similar or whether you listen to them... Uh, I don't know,
1: in the so, bath or... Yeah, well, for me, it was it was um, originally it was a gym and kind of going to and from work thing uh, when they first started, and then actually when we had a dog, it was a walking the dog thing. Uh, and so I remember actually talking to you once when we worked together that I was talking, oh, and I heard this thing on a podcast, um, which is a thing that everybody who knows me has heard me say at least twice a day uh, for over a decade, and and you just went, when do you sleep? But I think if you if you have things that you do that are tasks that you know podcasts can be quite good company for things uh, and they're quite a good way to catch up on things that traditionally probably would have been read like news and things like that so for me they they've i've always loved the radio and i'd much rather hear some people talking about stuff and the kind of round table or this kind of format for um appeals to kind of the social part of my brain as well so i feel like i'm sort of getting to know some people if i hear them talking about something maybe more so than reading it as well
0: yeah no definitely i mean i uh... I think people use them for different reasons, don't they? I mean, I mm. I have a few comedy ones, if you like, that I like to just cheer myself up. And then, uh, and then a couple of business ones that I get a few tips and ideas from. And I think people have yeah. different different ways of using podcasts and enjoying them. So I, mean, I have quite a plethora. Of, I have a couple of philosophy ones um, so that if someone sees what I'm scrolling through on my uh, podcast list on a train, I look intelligent so,
1: that's, cool. uh, so yeah, that's and so that's the other thing i like about it. it's like a few years ago um i looked up how to change an oil filter on on my motorbike uh, and i looked up how to do it on youtube rather than reading a guide or rather than going to a manual or stuff and it meant i watched it and two minutes later i knew what i had to do and and i think that's an interesting thing because like podcasts is the same thing There, i'd never thought to look at to look up something like philosophy, but actually I'd find that really engaging. And I'd really like, I'm, I'm going to do the same now, irrespective of whether it makes me look clever or not. Um, like, I, I think that's, that's the other thing is you can dip in and out of a topic for free. Yeah. You know, you can try it out.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And I think there's um, one very popular podcast, obviously the infinite monkey cage where mm. you can explore extremely complex ideas, but they always have a comedian in there so that, uh, the slightly more hard-of-learning people like myself. <laughs> who, uh, who it um,
1: yeah, you don't want things to get too complicated.
0: No, exactly. And I'm going to try and keep it um, quite straightforward. Um, now, for those who haven't listened to the podcast before, uh, with this being an early series, um, essentially there's a, there's a sales thread throughout, because that's, uh, that's what I do. Um, and essentially we're all linked in some way to sales, whether we like it or not. Um, but I want to explore um, how that how that interacts with your world, um, uh, the world of um, gaming, publishing, um, producing games, um, and I and I'm really interested in that. But I want to take a little bit of a step back first, if that's okay, because um, um, when we've when we, we've worked together um, years ago, um, and you described sort of being uh, the son of a salesperson, and I'm interested to sort of start there really and see how uh, how that affected you in in positive ways and uh, geared you up essentially for understanding sales going forward
1: yeah well i think it was a it was a benefit and i think you know my dad traveled a lot when i was young and then um later my parents separated and and he would travel to see us and we would spend weekends with him so he would um i think it was a way for him to kind of get the company to help pay for his weekends with his kids but (laughs) it it meant that we went to he was in water uh, Waterville to sales uh, for Britta and then Waymaster back in the day, and so he we would go to these shops and we 'd see him, and we 'd develop as well relationships with the people that ran the shops, and they were all kind of health food shops and delicatessens and stuff like that and so i 've really fond memories of going to see these shops, Dad taking the order to them. So he was, although he was, you know, their director of sales and like the most senior salesperson in the company, he was also turning up with their order of three packs of water filter cartridges and a couple of jugs. And here's one that's a free one to put on display of the new colors that are coming out and stuff. And, and so it, it did give me, uh, I guess, an insight into, into that sales process and the kind of the relationship building, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the, the, the going, you know, they, whatever was you want to say about it, I'm sure people felt a bit more special having the director of sales for the company come to them. And also that he's brought his kids, like he's made it a family thing. He's not pretending that this is some super clinical sales process. You know, dad was in sales, um, right after the war um and pretty much did salesy things until he died And he was 90 when he died and he was doing he was still like going to pubs and taking photos for them and turn them into postcards and you know little side hustles like that you know um so he was a salesman through and through and through uh which was good and bad at various points because he was also a bit of a chancer but he 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 did teach me that like you know it was there everything was there for the taking in a good way, right? Like you could go and talk. What was the worst that could happen? You go and talk to someone, see what's happening, see what's occurring, you know? And I think the it's, the gift it gave me and, and my sister uh, as well, it was like, we're not worried about going into a situation where we don't know people or where we don't know, even like in a situation where we don't even know what we're talking about, right? We're just gonna, We're just going to go in and start and have a conversation. And the worst thing that can happen is that, you know, someone doesn't like it. Or, or whatever, you know, and I, and I think that the that also gave me a comfort being so close to sales with the fact that when you sometimes in organizations, it's cool to kind of like hate on sales and stuff. And, oh, that's sales. Oh, did the marketing department decide that. It's like, well, the sales and the marketing department keep the lights on. So if you want to do whatever the cool engineering thing is, say that you do having knowing that somebody's got to want it, somebody's got to buy it at the end of the day, it's not a bad thing. We shouldn't
0: be shy about that. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. Mm. That's, yeah, that's interesting because I think that um, it's easy, isn't it, that when you're in a certain profession, whether it be sales or engineering or whatever it might mm. be, yeah, because when you look at another skill set, um, you can almost have, them on, have those people on a pedestal because you think, well, I, I couldn't do that. But then yeah. the opposite side of that, I suppose, is that you, maybe not you, one, turns their nose down at these people and thinks oh god you know i couldn't i wouldn't want to be in accounts so they always seem to get it in the neck don't they god I couldn't. yeah, yeah. worse than um <laughs> you know sitting in front of a spreadsheet all day um yeah so, so okay so in terms of the, the sales process then so you, you mm. mentioned a little bit about that and you know you've worked um some sort of pioneering computer publications early on where you contributed to some Early computer, earlier computer magazines. I'm not trying to age you. Uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) And were you sort of aware or bothered about the the sales process at that point? With you, with obviously the upbringing and exposure to sales that you had, was that was that coursing through your mind at that point, or was it just a was it was it just a sort of um, irrelevance essentially to what you were doing?
1: Well, it definitely wasn't irrelevant. But I think I'm. I often say to people, I that I didn't know who I was and didn't know my own name until I was about 28. Right. So I think what happened was because of the exposure to these things when I was younger, I think I had an awareness of it. And I think that background awareness helped me in like, I ran um, my own web-based games magazine back in, back in the day in the nineties, late nineties and early two thousands, because there weren't many UK focused ones. It was before GameSpot had launched the UK based thing. And so I, I was sort of doing UK stuff and that led to freelancing then for people like GameSpot Uh, and uh, one website that I did a lot of freelance for actually, which is called Freeloader. And Freeloader had a really interesting sales model for the time. So GameSpot and other websites basically had this model of, we publish the article, um, we put ads around it, we'll sometimes do a complete site-wide takeover, which is still still common enough, it happens. So like a new Assassin's Creed is coming out and GameSpot plasters Assassin's Creed over everything. And that has historically, in some of those publications, led to conflict where... Um, you know, the game that's that's buying all the ad space is considered bad by the people running the publication. And then the person reviewing it, you know, there is one famous example of a guy who who was let go from the publication because he refused to change his score on, on a game. But I was never... I was mercifully never like close enough to something that was contentious enough where that was going to happen. It doesn't mean it couldn't have, but I, I didn't get any of those to review. But Freeloader presented different challenges in another way, which was their model was do a licensing deal with someone that made a game, usually an older game. So at the time it was like the it would be the late 90s, I think, or early, maybe 99, 2000. And they had Grand Theft Auto 2, which had been out for a, for a while, right? It's an older game at this point. And um, you could get that for free by clicking through and watching some adverts or looking at some adverts or whatever and download it in a kind of episodic way. And then if you wanted access to the next bit, you'd go and get it. And Freeloader also had some games you could play in the browser. And they also had like a magazine section that I wrote for and wrote reviews for. And... So that was kind of a quite an interesting kind of mixed revenue model there. Um, And he's probably as a freelancer, the closest I ever got to that. And there was no, there was never any pressure on us to write a certain number of words or to do a certain type of thing. They tried to keep the two separate. And I think that's, that's maybe naively where these things always start. It's like you, you want to maintain your independence. And I think over the years that's kind of morphed into the kinds of publications we see now. And everyone is still trying to work out how to make money from publishing on the web because it was free right from the start. So unfortunately that free is a really hard thing to come back from. If you say to customers, you know, say to consumers, you couldn't just walk into the co-op and pick up a, you know, copy of the Guardian and just walk out with it. So why do we expect we can do that? Sorry?
0: Not after the incident.
1: Well, no quite. And and the least said about that, the better. Um, But the, but yeah, you couldn't do that. So why do we expect we can do it on the web? Same with anonymity, same with a bunch of, of unintended consequences of the way that we probably collectively set up the internet. But that, that was the closest I think I ever got, was like being close to sort of an interesting publishing model. And then reviewers and stuff, we would talk amongst each other in hushed tones about the challenges of, well, what if they buy the ads and we say the game's crap? And it's like, well, that's a thing that might just happen. You know? and, and, I, and I think you also have to bear in mind that like, to a certain extent, as, especially as the industry grows, something's are review proof. Right. So like, yeah. irrespective of what I think about whatever cartoon tie in, whether it's good or bad, it'll sell some copies. Right. Cause someone, you know, everyone's got parents that look at it and go, that's got the character on that little Timmy likes. We'll buy that.
0: Oh, definitely. And I can vouch for that with the PS4 version of the latest Jumanji film, which my son loved the film. Yes. Uh, yeah. Oh, the game takes about four minutes to complete. Um, I imagine yeah. I don't know I don't have the figures but they you know they, they probably made a, a decent amount of money on it I would imagine um, but yeah so you mentioned there then it was interesting because when I was reading magazines like that um, back then such as ST Format for the Atari mm. um, yeah. there, was, there was it's almost talking about social proofing because if they if they there was these arbitrary numbers at the end of an, at the end of an engrossing review hopefully where yeah. it would be quite it it changed from sort of out of 10 seemingly to out of 100 to give it that extra bit of scale and if something was less than 70 something you would essentially deem that game as rubbish and yeah yeah it would would signify it's a bit like a, a review of a car on top gear i suppose where that would that could significantly impact sales and the bbc have that um shield around them i suppose where because they're funded in a unique way um, they're able to, within reason, say what, whatever they want. And I suppose that's essentially what you're trying to describe there with the different, the different take from freeloading.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and I think they knew, right? They, they, the magazine was just add on, was an add-on to them. So it's a very early example of the model that we see on a really grand scale from people like Amazon and Google where um, they have music services. Like Apple runs an entire radio station globally for LOLs, right? That doesn't make them money right it, it it definitely doesn't like that thing costs them money to run but what it does do is is kind of add bolster the offering so like when you're in their lovely walled garden you don't want to leave because you can also get music you can also get tv it's like oh we've got all of this and amazon do the same thing amazon prime is an absurd value proposition like that eight pounds a month for free next day delivery on most stuff and an, a massive music library and a library of tv shows and movies. And 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 right. So, if you look at then freeloader is a tiny version of that, where come here for some games and stay for some extra content, and then you'll come back for some more games, and we'll reap the ad revenue. And if they if if it had you know if it hadn't run out of money, I'm sure they'd be doing video and podcast type stuff now. And that you know that's the way the world and the industry has gone.
0: Mm. No, it's interesting. So, so just going on from that then, when when you're talking about getting to the end of those um pieces of um of journalism regarding gaming and uh essentially you you might have to say bad things about a game because essentially it's you know maybe one one level above the infamous atari et game and (laughs) um you know knowing you for a number of years you know you're 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 known and you are a nice guy and people don't have bad things to say about you but what about what about what's your thoughts then on a, on the set on salespeople? I mean, do you hmm. do you think that salespeople need to have a mean streak within them to to succeed in, in a sales job? Is that would that be fair? Or
1: well, I so I don't think it. Is. I mean, first of all, I can give you a list of people. There are definitely people out there who would have bad things to say about me, um, but I think um, uh, I don't agree with them. Uh, I'm great, but I think the the sales thing. What well, I suppose there is a there is a, a version of a salesy person who's a character that we see in TV or media or whatever, like, you know, that that pops into people's head in the same way that, you know, the villain from a movie or whatever. I think sometimes sales gets a bad rap, right? Because they're the people who come in and ask for something that will be perceived, however however well laid the groundwork was, will be perceived as a distraction or, oh, it's just for sales or it's just for... The, and, and people forget, like I said at the top, you know, They forget that the sale keeps the lights on. The sale keeps everyone in a job. The sale is the reason that we make the thing. With the best will in the world, if you make the thing that nobody wants, then it's nice, but it's just art. And that's a different, you're in a different world at that point. You're just, you're you're making something to satisfy yourself rather than to satisfy someone's need. And you know, as as unpopular as it is, I think there's there's a reason we call it work, not super happy fun time. And we have to pay people to be there. I don't think that has to come with a mean streak. I think when it's done well, it comes with uh, an excitement or a passion for, for the reason we're doing it. Right. The reason we're doing this thing. So like whether it's to help keep someone safe or, you know, in my dad's world um, one of the things he did, which I I suspect made him really unpopular was the um, they were when they were at Waymaster Britta launched uh, a jug filter, right. That went in your fridge. So prior to that, they'd sat on your worktop. They were quite a big square boxy thing. If you imagine something that sort of, I don't know, like in terms of footprint was half the size of a bread bin, right? They were big and boxy and, and you know, they were, they were chunky mothers and they sat on, you know, where were you going to keep it? And so this idea of putting them on a fridge now, back in, in those days, this is the um, probably the mid 80s. Fridge sizes were different in the UK than they were in Europe. So dad nipped down to Curry's with a tape measure, measured all the doors of the fridges and quickly worked out that the Brita filter wouldn't fit in any of, in UK or in a lot of UK fridges. Mm-hmm. So immediately he had an opportunity there. So we can go back to the factory and go, guys, we've got to make this change and here's why. And we're going to make the one that works because they've, they've launched this product and they're just, a, they're making assumptions and we, you know, we can do this. So it's, it's turning kind of a disadvantage, finding the opportunity in it. And so I don't think it, it needs to come with a, a sort of a, a a kind of vicious streak i think you want your salespeople to like be dogged and determined and not give up like you want them to be you know setting up one deal that team runs off and i'm thinking about like in the agencies that i worked in previously where like the account manager or director would be they'd set up the deal for the project the project team gets spun up they go off and do the thing and then they're off arm around the next person they find in the business like uh, you know a big company like a bt or a vodafone or whatever going cool tell me about what else you're doing what else do you need some help with what else could we help you out with that's similar to this or different to this and he's hunting and i think that hunting instinct can sometimes be perceived in a bad way because it makes people uncomfortable but it's also how things get done Mm -hmm. and we shouldn't be we shouldn't be shy about people who get things done every you know, every person in business that we admire, like the obvious examples, like your jobs and Bill Gates and, and whatever. I'm, I'm a big fan of a guy called Edwin Land, who was the founder of Polaroid. Phenomenal person. Right. And once got phoned up by the U.S. Army during the Second World War. Um, soldiers uh, were seeing explosions like through goggles and getting blinded by them. They didn't have good protective goggles. They rang Polaroid because um, they'd made these polarizing lenses and stuff. And they thought maybe they could help. And Edwin Land goes, yep, uh, okay, I'll uh, fly over. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon. And they went, oh, you know how to do it then? He went, no, but I will by then. Now, can you imagine the fear that that puts into your engineering team? But if you do it in the right way, and you've got the trust of the team around you, they're not worried that you come back. There has to be a little bit of madness somewhere in the mix yes there has to be a little bit of that can't be done can it because otherwise we just keep making the same thing over and over again and everything that we admire like it or not gets sold because it's doing something that it didn't that we couldn't do before so every product that you've ever admired all my favorites being things like nintendo products and apple products like ipods and things like that they all come about because they see an opportunity in something that would probably have made rooms full of people uncomfortable. Like how are we going to educate people in this thing that never existed before? How are we going to market it to people? How are we going to manufacture it if there's no manufacturing process, but, but life finds a way provided everyone's like motivated in the right way. And I think that that initial spark can come from sales and often does, but when it, but, but it doesn't, the sales bit doesn't then get celebrated because the sale is just a byproduct okay
0: so I mean when we met we were working on some um well in some t- some terms classified military um contracts mm. and some very specialist um safety safety developments yeah. and there's a strange sometimes strange dynamic, <clears throat> and it can very much um depend on the individuals in my experience because um, I know that we had essentially two very different engineering teams and that dynamic with the sales or with, let's say, with the commercial department can be, can be quite an odd one, can't it? Um, you know, you're potentially explaining some of your, some of your experience there, but yeah. do you find it was different in the, or do you find it's different in the gaming world to maybe more of an industrial application, like the ones you described, such as your dad with Britta and, and ourselves when we were working on, you know, gas detection projects?
1: Yeah, so I think the thing that's really surprised me about coming back into games, and I, and I shouldn't have been surprised, but when I, was out, when I was in it previously, I was on the other side of the table, right? I was a journalist. And so I was constantly surprised and delighted by the stuff that was put in front of me. I was like, wow, this is great. And it's better than last time. And yeah. and then the thing I've found since, since being back in is, is really that no one has yet said, that's not my job, right? Like everyone, everyone understands that promoting the thing and making the thing better and having ideas for stuff is, is actually, everyone has a part to play in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's also partly because a lot of the people I'm working with now are younger as well. And so they've grown up more, like you know, a lot of people in their early 20s. So they've, they've barely ever had a time in their lives when there wasn't an internet. And they don't really remember a time much where there wasn't social media. So they also understand the need or the compulsion to talk about the thing you're working on. Because mm-hmm. you want people to see it. Because you want... You, you do like that little validation that dopamine hit when you retweet the thing about the thing you made um, and they want it to be good. They want people to like the thing that they sweated over. Nobody wants to make a bad product. Um, and it might also be slightly different in games as well, because software is relatively easy to change. Like if you've sent something off for molds to be made in China and they're on their way back and then you realize it's wrong. Well, that's a bad day at the office, right? Whereas changing some software, making a change, recommitting something. Yes. It's, it's not no effort, but by comparison, you can make change relatively quickly and you can iterate quite quickly so that also means that the feedback loop for people is that they see they see the impact of that change and the benefit quite quickly so even if they're not sold on it you can try something quite quickly and then decide whether or not it's really working for you so um, but but to go back to like the dad example I wasn't in the office and stuff but my memory and recollection of it is that people told me that story back to me and thought it was quite good the way he went off and did that. So I think a positive approach to the kind of how can we? This is something I used to say to my team before, you know, when we worked together all the time, is like, how could we? How could we do this? How could we approach this? Like what could we do? Like we've got this legacy thing maybe that doesn't quite do what you want it to do. How could it do it? Rather than getting stuck on, but it doesn't do that. It's like, yeah, but could it? Like what or or what can we get to that's close? We can't do what they've, you know, they've come to us, they've asked for a thing. I think the other, you know, the other thing is like you go and understand, bring them along, right? Take, take as many people to understand the problem as possible. Get yeah. them invested. Get them to meet the person that's going to use it.
0: Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. So
1: like you said uh, earlier
0: on, um, sales and marketing are, are, are keeping the lights on essentially and, and trying to drive drive a process from a customer's perspective. Yeah, uh, I'm interested to know, I mean, you, you, you've worked on some significant video games, which I mentioned in the introduction. And I'm interested in how commercial deadlines, because essentially there need to be deadlines, otherwise you mm. get engineers. I mean, um, polishing the Bentley, shall we say? Yeah, We'll hit yeah. them. Um, can that stifle that creative process, or, you know, or or drive it, or or both, perhaps? Well,
1: the the deadlines. I mean, games you're making something that's fun, right? So it's a, it's a hard thing to measure. Like I, I will use this example sometimes at work now where I'll say to people in, in previous lives, you're, you're measuring a reading of something and it either does it or it doesn't, right? And so that you can tick the box. Like you've got a gas bottle with a percentage of oxygen in it. You pass it over a sensor. The sensor says it's the same percentage, you know, plus or minus, whatever level of accuracy. Like that has a pass, no pass, sort of a pass fail sort of criteria associated with it in a way that kind of, is it fun? doesn't have pass fail criteria but but that being said you know often the deadline is still essential in keeping people focused because otherwise they'll wander off as you say and they'll go and they'll go and fiddle with stuff and so a team a team needs to have a kind of pressure on it i think that that applies like i'm i'm a big fan of small teams uh, i think the jeff bezos two pizza rule is correct I think if a team needs more than two and they're American pizzas to be fair, but if a team needs more than two American pizzas to fill it, uh, to feed it, then it's too big, you know? So I think, I think small teams do great work and I think deadlines are important provided the team are bought into them and they're not insane yeah. because it does keep you focused like like sooner or later it has to ship. And I think the modern, the, the thing about modern games, as much as consumers maybe find it frustrating that stuff ships and then, you know, updates follow almost immediately i think that, is, that yeah right. that is that, no no you're right though but that is also a net there there are a bunch of net positives there and i think the the business model aspect is sometimes getting in the way of the fact of yeah but it is better in a bunch of ways that i get updates and that often the performance of the thing i bought improves for free months later years later you know like i Ooh. whether it's dungeons that we just shipped minecraft dungeons which you know we've done two updates i think Ooh. since launch and that came out in April. Uh, And I still saw a comment on Twitter from someone going, I thought this game was dead. It's like, come on, mate. We've done three launches during a pandemic, (laughs) like across four platforms. Like that's, you know, that's insane. Um, But whether it's that, or whether it's Splatoon 2 that I bought on the Switch like two, three years ago now, and is still getting updates and they're still doing Splatfests and they're still, you know, like that's insane value for money. Like I realise games cost a lot. But, it, but they haven't gone up in price significantly for 15 years, like since the 360 era, you know, since the Xbox 360 and PS3 came out when we went up to $60. So the value you're getting out of that thing, and that, that value is all driven by the fact that you can make changes like mm. late on or update afterwards, which was just something that was just unheard of when we were growing up. Like you, you, went, to the, you went to Woolworths, you bought the game for $2.99 on a tape. Mm. That, ge- that game is still in my grandma's drawer and that game hasn't changed. Yeah, uh, and, and so I think the, the upside outweighs the downside for me. I know that it creates problems for archives and things like that, but I think it's, it's still broadly a net positive, I think.
0: Okay. No, it's, it's interesting you bring, you bring that up, actually, because I remember in the uh, Super Nintendo days, um, a Super Nintendo cartridge, now it might be that we're a little bit older now, but the Super Nintendo cartridge price seemed astronomical. Yeah. absolutely yeah. astronomical at the time it was sort mm. of Christmas present birthday present and you know well lottery before it was a thing
1: oh yeah, yeah.
0: but now they seem to have plateaued the price of games yeah. uh, particularly yeah. mainstream games well indie games obviously the pricing tends to be a little bit more flexible and all over the place where you know yeah. you've got yeah. the amazing game like Dungeons like you said for sort of 18-19 pounds whatever it is Yeah,
1: but
0: When when you're buying um, the latest Halo or whatever it might be, when it first comes out, you're talking around the £50 mark and it's been like that, I I don't know, I don't know how long, you probably know better than me. How how, how have they managed to do that? Were they having our eyes out back in the day? Um, And what's different?
1: So the the example that springs to mind when you talk about cartridge prices was probably like Street Fighter, for example, when it yes. came out for the SNES, and when it came out for the Genesis or the Mega Drive as well. So that one, because it was a 16 megabit cartridge, so it was twice the storage, I think, mm. the, of, of normal, quote unquote, cartridges. And cartridges were expensive to make anyway, because you've got a PCB in there, you've got chips. You have to buy those from somewhere. They have to be produced. You have to flash them to put the software onto them. So there's a, there's an expensive manufacturing process there and it's, it's heavy. It's in a big plastic box. Like it weighs something, you know, you've got to get it to a store back in the day, all those things, you're going to lose 50% because you're going to put it in bricks and mortar because the internet doesn't, that isn't a thing for consumers yet. Um, so when they brought out those games, and I think Street Fighter for memory was like 60 or 70 quid yeah. or something. It was like $90, I think, to remember was the price and people, people still bought it. Yeah, terrible, wasn't it? and people, people still bought it. They wanted all the characters. Um, and I think, I think those, in those examples, that was, that was speaking to the fact that like, we're not geared up for this. We cannot manufacture this for less. But right. when, when you look at games when they made the jump from like £40 pounds to 50 so 60 bucks in about 2005 2006 when the 360 came out mm-hmm. that and that price you're right has plateaued and, and in part i think it's because there wasn't a consumer appetite to go higher and in part it was also because we were at the beginning of that kind of downloadable um games kind of model as well so if you look at like the new you know fast forward to now 15 years later ps5 is about to come out and one the versions of that console doesn't have a disk drive at wow. all right and so the the speculation is that the price on that will be lower because you're forced to buy direct from sony and so actually sony will always make 100 percent revenue on a product that they don't need to stock on a shelf that it costs them nothing to keep extra copies in so every so often there'll be blowout sales where you can pick up like spider-man and horizon for like 15 quid each which is an insane value proposition in itself because those are very very high quality products at like 15 quid um so i don't think it's necessarily that they were having our eyes out before it's that the cost the cost has shifted so whereas before the model assumed they were always going to lose 50 percent. so when i worked in a video game shop in in glasgow in the early 2000s like we'd pay about 17 pounds for a game and then sell it for 45 something like that so we were trying to make retail had to make 50 percent more on top just to kind of You know, keep keep the lights on in in a shop and pay idiots like me to trot about and sell video games, Um, and the, the but the cost of making games has gone up. But the delivery mechanism, there's also a portion of your sales are coming direct now. So you're making you're making that same amount of money. You can't historically. The excuse was you couldn't discount online because otherwise you'd upset bricks and mortar. Right. And and I think that's starting to shift now, like the relationship with these stores, and we'll see what happens off the back of the pandemic as to whether a lot of games retail actually survives. Because I don't see people rushing out to shops again, let alone video game shops, when your consumer is very savvy, knows where they can get it delivered to them online or knows where they can buy it digitally and will wait for a steam sale. You know, we're coming into the time of year where people go, Don't buy it, wait for the steam sale. Or Mm -hmm. don't buy it the week it comes out on Amazon, wait a couple of weeks and then it's ten cheaper right so and that's real like that happens so i think the what's happened is kind of as one cost went down and profitability was coming up so did the cost of making the games and that's weirdly kept the price kind of stable but what we're seeing now is like nba 2k the the 2k sports game that's coming out uh, for current gen and next, I think their, their slide deck, their sales slide deck leaked a few weeks ago. And there's stuff on there that suggests that like a next gen version of that game, which is a big sports game, like FIFA, like you mentioned before, like that could cost 80, $90 potentially, mm-hmm. like they, they were kicking around that idea because all, unfortunately also with every generational shift comes an increase in quality, which is re- you re- you're required to stump up the people for that. Like that, if you want to model LeBron James, in 8k high def you know with beads of sweat running down him and you want it to look like that person it's going to animate like that person and you've got to do motion capture from real players or whatever that's a very very expensive process like years ago that was what that was lauded as like oh my god look what they did for the lord of the rings and now we're trying to do it for annual sports franchises so the cost associated with making these things is enormous Mm -hmm. um and so it's Sooner or later, we have to start passing that on. Someone's going to get paid somewhere. Otherwise, they're going to start doing things that are also really unpopular, like rolling in advertising. Or you buy the base game and then you get updates you know, throughout that you buy extra ones for. So Dungeons is a good example. I think the base price is like £19 or something like that. And you can buy the add-ons and stuff and get the whole thing for 25 Right. So you can buy the Hero Edition, which will get you access to all the DLC. Or you can just buy the base game and then you can add it later. So I it, would think
0: be, it would be remiss of me then not to interject at this point and ask for your opinion on the controversial inclusion of loot boxes um, in a lot of games such as Overwatch and obviously Fortnite um, yeah. as to essentially enabling, well, one viewpoint is enabling children in particular to yeah. gamble. Um yeah. uh, <laughs> You know, I certainly have my own views on it, but I'm interested in yeah, yeah, yeah. what you call so, that, that sales technique is contra- yeah.
1: And I and I think rightfully so. I think it's rightfully controversial. I think the I think random drops of things is something that's kind of part of part of games, like randomly getting stuff. But I think making people pay for random stuff is a little bit sketch. I think that starts to feel a little bit like icky. So if I have to play you know you get random loot drops in in a lot of games and if i have to play through a loop multiple times to get the drop that i wanted or trade it with a friend well that feels like i'm playing the game right that's part of the game yeah. but if i have to buy boxes to get that then that starts to feel a bit icky and i think the the battle pass model of you get access to a game and it has seasons so apex legends does this and Fortnite does it i think that that feels quite good and i think the nice that's a nice sort of midpoint because then you're bought into a season you can choose whether to buy into the season or not and and if you don't well that's fine you can still in most cases you can still play the game you just don't have you know a free skin or a free this or free that but you can still play the game you can still enjoy the game a lot of these things are cosmetic so they don't make you better at the game i think it was the early things where um of these add-ons made you better at the game and you could pay to win and i think those companies have learned from the real pushback on that those got and also like governments starting to legislate look like well look this is gambling and you can't we can't have like 10 year olds gambling like you're teaching them how to gamble and and i think that that judgment is correct i think belgium was one of the first countries to really kind of come down quite hard on that and I, i think it's probably the right thing to do i'm all for trying to monetize the thing, but in a way that feels fair to the person that bought it because they did buy it. Their excitement did drive the thing. You know, that's that's the other side to that sales relationship, isn't it? Like yeah. you, what what you did for that consumer, how they felt about it. Like they probably in 2020, they probably tweeted about it. They probably told their friends. They, they might even have pre-ordered it. So it's not really reasonable to then day one, expect them to suddenly sink a load more cash into it. To actually get anywhere, um, there has to be a a base experience there that's worthwhile having. You know,
0: agreed. No, no I think it's interesting because you, you you also mentioned about the um, you know you use the LeBron James speed of sweat example as uh, mm. as something. Now I know maybe I'm a traditionalist, but um, as I've mentioned, I play FIFA online terribly. I don't think my reactions get worse as I get older and I get worse at the game and get humiliated by online by no no doubt by six-year-olds but uh, (laughs) i i've got to a point um with sports simulation for example where the proposition for me is at a tipping point where realism is in danger of um jeopardizing gameplay and i'll give you an example of where um a, a very simple but fantastic um concept to me was the Untitled goose game um for the for the switch, mm. which came out of nowhere from Denmark, I believe was it or, or something like that from a developer in Denmark I, I think
1: I about it was published by panic, but yeah
0: yeah, and uh, you know it was I don't remember how much it was now, not a massive game, but a very different very fun um and I'm wondering um without that tip and it it's a two stage question this which I know is a bit of a sales no no um well, I'm interested in your take on that and also how indie developers have got to c- perhaps carve niches out to compete with the likes of, you know, behemoths because yeah. you know, we're in danger of having... You know, sometimes when I go into a, a game store now and I'm looking for new new games, that there aren't many. And, and then when, when they come out, it's the next iteration of the last big game. So, you know, we'll, I can see yeah. it now. We'll be up to Halo... 26, and you know, people are longing for something different, which is why I, th- I believe, you know, the likes of the Goose game were such a hit because people want. I mean, when we were younger, yeah. I'm going a little all over the place here. When we were younger, <laughs> you would get all sorts of games, yeah. absolutely random things. You know, once the yeah. people had realized that you didn't just have to make a new Pong or a new, um, a new Space Invaders, people went nuts. And you got things like Larmatron and, you know, just crazy. And now I, I'm concerned that without indie developers, you, you're left with these sort of formulaic seven or eight games that you just see, you know, regurgitated.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, you're right, and I think we we were fortunate enough. We grew up in a time where, like, your copy of ST format, because I had an ST as well, um, and your copy of ST format arrived, and on the front cover was all sorts of weird stuff. So Jeff Minter's latest, plus uh, a, like a Bomberman thing called Frying Friends. I remember came once on the front of ST format, um, and then your mate had got ST Action, and you'd swap disc and look. Here's a demo of this thing, or you know, like that's for. It, that was one of the big ways that say Doom suddenly emerged. Is that People were able to have these direct relationships with a the customer. There was no middleman. You could give a disc over to someone else. Uh, Jeff Minter, who did Llamatron, incidentally, has got a new game that's just come out. Um, so he's still still doing the thing, and he still does live Twitter videos occasionally when he goes out to feed his sheep. Um, absolute loon. But but I think the 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 space needs to exist for these for these different types of games because I think there's as with everything, like the ability to create things, or so like your ability to create this podcast, or to create. Um, you know, marketing materials or whatever has increased dramatically. Like you, the things you can do with the computer that's sat in front of you right now is, is just streets ahead of what you could have hoped to accomplish on your own, say 30 years ago, right? Like you can do a lot on your own now and kind of get yourself to a certain point. And I think game development's the same. We've put incredible tools in the hands of people and they're making all sorts of weird, noodly little games. And I think the challenge, the challenge now is that um because I agree, like we're we're hungry for stuff that's different. But also what you see online sometimes it's the movie industry sees us as well. You know, you you oh I want something different. What, what what did you think of that different film? That was weird and a bit challenging. So then I went to see the new Avengers and it was like cuddling into a warm cozy blanket. Because I mean I've been playing Halo 4 this week, right? I, I never actually got around, I bought it years ago, second hand. Never actually got around to playing 2012's Halo 4. Do you know what it's really good? It's a really good one of those. But afterwards Will I, you know, what did I play before that? Well, I played uh, a game last week called My Exercise, which is a really weird, noodly indie game about a boy doing sit ups with his dog. And I played Donut County again recently, which is excellent and really odd, where you, you are a hole and, and you're, you're moving around, swallowing up things in a world. And there's an asshole raccoon. And just like, you know, there's some weird games out there, some really noodly, fun little things. Some, some friends of mine launched a game this week called Bright which is a murder mystery where you're a cat and it's a puzzle game, but it's a puzzle game with a murder mystery in it. So like the, I think the the challenge is that actually people do want different. They do want new experiences, but there's also so many, like there's so much volume coming through now. If you looked at steam or something like that every week and just looked at just the sheer volume of games coming through, it is overwhelming and it's hard. I see tweets from developers, indie devs all the time, like saying how hard it is to find their game on the platform when it launches, because as you say, the behemoth is there because the platform holder is the gatekeeper to digital distribution. So although you as a maker of a game don't need to press discs or make cartridges or whatever and get them shipped out to stores and do posters and have a publishing partner to, to help you do that, you can, in theory, have a direct relationship, but you can't because you still have to go through the, the gatekeeper, which is the platform. And, and like the store, like stores need to exist. Like I think it is right that Sony, Microsoft, Apple and others, like they run the platform, they run the store, the store is secure, it's trusted, it means that you can trust the source that you're getting stuff from. You know, like that—that I think is all net positive. Like people get value from that, without a doubt. And and I think the thing that's happening with Epic and Apple at the moment—I think Epic are possibly going about it a little bit the wrong way because, like, they do get something from Apple. Like they might feel bad about their thirty percent, but they're—you know—it's—it's hard to say. Though I don't like their thirty percent when you accept the thirty percent from Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo. So, like, there is a value there to a developer. They do take some money from you. But the volume makes it hard, and I think unless you get picked up like Untitled Go- Go- Goose Game did, and you know, unless it's it starts to do the rounds and and get really seen, there's a danger that your game just sort of dis- sort of disappears. Um, and it is it's a really hard problem to solve. It's like how do you how does the good stuff rise to the top? Because theoretically, the good stuff rises to the top because people find it and they start playing it.
0: I was going to ask that because you you make no. Um no secret of the fact that you're certainly a nintendo fanboy and uh <laughs> no and i think the thing with nintendo for example from the sales and markets perspective is that they're not afraid to be different in fact they mm. you know they you know obviously yeah. there's a few they failed hard with the likes of virtual virtual boy was that what it was called
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah it was before its time and seemed to be designed by stevie wonder in the dark and um in terms of how it looked, um but the you know the, the ds you know the touch screen the um the wii u um the the switch obviously which has gone you know mad and rightly so and it's fantastic they they book trends and they and they start the, and, and they start them but the for me that from the sales perspective the way that they the way that they actually sell you know when i've gone to um video game um, expos when they were a thing and the, the way they set up and the way they engage with the nintendo experts on their stands on their booths is completely different to to um you know the other you know the other big boys and i just wondered what your what your thoughts are on how to carve out that stance and that niche you know in terms of gaming you know is that what is that what indie indie publishers need need to be doing as well they just need to come at it from a different perspective from a sales perspective and actually sell you know what the game is and why people should care
1: sure I, well i think so i think what nintendo do really was well they they've they they pursue a blue ocean strategy which i think i actually may have bored you with in the past but like blue ocean strategy in a nutshell is that you don't try and compete you don't go where everyone else is red ocean is crowded blue ocean is open and there's no one there and you create something different and you definitely see that in uh the likes of the ds certainly in the wii uh you know like they're creating something the wii was basically two game cubes strapped together was the joke in terms of its performance right and that that interface the way you interacted with it was so different that they sold a bajillion of them there was a period of time when i remember hearing on podcast that it was they were selling six hundred thousand units a month in the us alone Right, and Nintendo employees were worth more person for person than Goldman Sachs, right. It was a mad time, and they've definitely had their ups and downs since then, but their their ability to kind of choose a direction and go and do something totally different I think is is as you say their strength and and from a business perspective, I like it because it's clever and it 's a bit noodly, and it's like right we're going off we're going to do something totally different. You know Sony and Microsoft are chasing polygons and teraflops and performance, and Nintendo are making cardboard things. <laughs> right that's mad but it's wonderful and i've got a house full of cardboard because of it and they're all great toys and you can't you can't play have that play experience anywhere else right that's it's insane and it's wonderful i love this and as you say the switch god like there's so many things you look at that device if you wrote down on a bit of paper everything it does works in tabletop mode you can take the controllers off you can use one controller you can use two it vibrates in a new way it's got infrared like on paper you would kill the project you'd be like this is insane you're making the homer car and somehow astonishingly three years ago it came together and it worked right so i think they it's two things i mean i think it's very easy to sell a good product I think that's part of the problem here is that we're talking about this at a time when like their product, that example is possibly a bad example because the product is excellent. But what if the product is kind of, is good, but a bit me too, or you're another, you're another pixely shooter, like in an eight bit, 16 bit style with a chiptune soundtrack. Like how do you stand out? You could be the best one of those this year, but how do you stand out next to, other pixely games you know kentucky root zero Road legacy they're a big pixel type game when people see that style of game they go oh it's one of those when actually and you're, you're crying out you're going no it isn't and i think that's where a traditional sales function the you know traditional sales kind of thinking comes in of like right what is its usp what does this do that nothing else does what can you do here that you can't do elsewhere what is the thing that will make us stand out so that people and you also have to try and weave that into the design a little bit as well like right how are we going to stand out how do we become you know why does uh untitled goose game stand out it's got a very very specific look i mean there's not that many games with geese although i actually have played two this year with geese in ironically um the other was knights and bikes which if you haven't played it is phenomenal um love that game it's fantastic um it's about being a little, a couple of little girls on a remote island on the south, in the south of England. It's it's fab. Love that game, and the goose uh, is a, an integral character. So I think I think for me, that's my that's why Nintendo appeal is because they they do this. They are so doggedly stuck on this idea of being of doing something unusual and different. And I think that applies to almost any indie developer or someone producing something that isn't one of those. Like unless you're making kind of game du jour, which at the moment is a battle royale title. And and people are still kind of pursuing that format and trying to perfect that format and be a different one of those. That's a crowded market. So you are right to go off and do something else. But you have to bear in mind that doing something else is hard to sell because people aren't expecting something else. And so I think you have to find that's where you have to do your kind of traditional sales homework of like, right, how am I going to explain to someone in a sentence what this is? and why they should care and is it because it's whimsical and therefore it's cheap and it's sort of throwaway and it's fun or is it because i i think you're going to spend 50 hours in front of this thing and it's going to be amazing okay that's interesting
0: well i think that we could probably have another chat equally as long on this sort of subject in the future <laughs> but um, <laughs> and i hope you agree and it's been great yeah. to have you on the podcast but well, i've got a couple of questions to <laughs> to finish up on certainly for mm-hmm. the episode if you don't mind yeah, yeah sure. what I like to ask most people is can they remember um the best sales experience that they've personally had and uh, share it with the group
1: yeah so I was gonna I was gonna check is that a, a sales experience at, like of me buying something or is that a sales experience of me being the seller um,
0: I think it's yeah you as a buyer sorry yeah i 'll work on my questioning technique mm, and, uh, okay <laughs> yeah as a as a buyer what whats can, does something stand out for you and, and why
1: I would say i mean probably one of the better ones i 've had i i mean i 've queued up overnight for consoles i 've done all sorts of things like that, but I think in terms of a sales experience, one I will point out and, and unfortunately. It's a really obvious one, uh, but it was I took my grandma to buy an iPad uh, not about, about a year and a half ago. And mm-hmm. I think that the thing that the thing that Apple do really, really well, and it's, it's easy to hate on them now that they're a juggernaut. Because when I've been an Apple apologist since the 2000s, when they weren't cool at all, or, the, you know, I thought they were cool. But like the mainstream was like, whatever. And and I took my grandma said she wanted a new iPad. She's 87. And so, you know, really uh, in terms of places, I want to take her to have a shopping experience. I'm like, right, it's places like John Lewis, right? It's places where people will take the time. And so we were we were in Southampton and we took her to the store and it's a massive store. And they, I said, I want to, my grandma wants to buy an, uh, an iPad and she wants some stuff to go with it. And they very smartly found us an age appropriate salesperson, a woman in her forties who came over, they sat grandma at the back of a store, sort of in a quieter area, beautifully lit so she can sit and she she can spend as much time as she likes looking at the different covers and whatever. And they just took their time and they weren't in a hurry and they didn't try to upsell her on anything. And in terms of understanding your customer straight away and doing the right thing, I think that was a, it stands out as like, this is why, you know, aside from the fact that then I know she uses the product because she messages me on it, but I never get any bad news about it. Aside from the fact that me as tech support, it's easy to maintain that just that sales Uh, experience for her and for me as family trying to guide an older person through it was just excellent they just understood who they were selling to and they they just executed it very smoothly for her and it was she enjoyed it and she uses the product to this day because of it oh that's
0: fantastic Uh, i I experienced something similar once um it was my wife really um where there was a dyson expert in a store and we went over to look at them um, when they'd got the new sort of, the, the smaller sort of handheld ones that were. Oh yeah. Um, I know that Dyson is a very controversial brand as well. And they had an expert in store and the first thing they said, which is quite nice and whether it's scripted or not, but they seemed to mean it was that I'm going to ask you about the type of things that you want to do with the Dyson and, and how you are going to use it and where, and if there isn't one that's suitable for you, then um, I don't want to sell you one. And I thought I was. They framed it really nicely in terms of understanding that my wife, you know, can't lift heavy things, and yeah, to do X, Y, and Z, and and then a bit like yourself there, you 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 want to become um, well an ambassador for that product and that that sale then because it was it was selling the right. Yeah. Thing. A phrase that I hate to hear is when people and from some salespeople or about some salespeople is that oh, I could sell ice to the Eskimos. And it makes me cringe because uh, why would you yeah. want to do that? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah they've, they've got loads. They, <laughs> they've got a lot, as it turns out.
0: Yeah, and I don't know whether I'm allowed to say Eskimos, but that is the phrase. Yes, yeah, I know
1: what you mean.
0: You know, that, that, that does make me cringe. So that's, that's, that's a lovely, lovely um, story. And I, I suppose sometimes I ask about the worst, but um, I'm not going to this in this case, if that's okay, because um, I want to keep this positive. Um, and what i would like to end on if it's okay with you is that i'd like to ask anyone on the podcast if they they could share one sales tip um uh, as long as it's not people buy from people because then i'll have to cut you off um (laughs) (laughs) is if you could share one sales tip um that you've maybe picked up or or learned over the years with the listeners what what would it be
1: so i think the the tip i would share is is actually a little bit like your Dyson person which is that you shouldn't be afraid to walk away if it's not the right thing like the amount of times in projects in the past like if I think of what's been difficult what's been challenging and chewy and unnecessarily difficult to get over the line it's often where we were trying to step outside of of um, an area we normally operate in or it was something that we just added no value to So you shouldn't be afraid to go, Oh, you want that? Cool. Well, listen, I'll give you the thing. This is where you should go and buy the box. And, and provided you do that in a supportive way, because I've, I've done it. I've been in organizations where we've done it both ways, right? Sometimes it was a bit too arm's length and sometimes it wasn't, but like in general stick to what you know you do well and be clear on what you think it is you're going to do because then you'll do it, you'll do it well. And you won't have trouble like roping in the rest of the team. And you won't, you know, you you won't encounter all those roadblocks and friction points because you're unfamiliar or the team are unfamiliar or the customer doesn't normally get this from you. And so, you know, if you're doing something for someone as a favor, it's a completely different kettle of fish, but like you, I think that's, being able to walk away. We did it when I I worked for a printing company called Moo years ago. And we did, um, we we were approached by a company who wanted to do custom stickers for things. And our stickers were a certain size and this company were um, marketing uh, like nicotine replacement like things that you can fiddle with and fidget with but you can still suck in a bit of nicotine through them so it's a bit like a cigarette but it's a little plastic thing mm. and they had this idea of like selling people as part of a promotion you know collect whatever and then you can get some custom stickers and apply the stickers to your thing to personalize it and make it feel like it's yours mm. and our stickers were these little square stickers and they were like but could you do a custom one for the cigarette holder type thing we were like well we'll have to go away we'll have to work it out we'll have to, you know we've never done this before we don't know what happens to it over time we don't know what will happen to it if it's in someone's bag or if it gets wet in the post or you know all these things and we were just like we walked away from it and I, and I think it was the right thing to do because I don't I don't know that we could have done it well for them and we had a load of other stuff on so we were trying to like we were scrabbling around and it, it feels hard especially when you're a small business because you're like I must have the sale I must have the sale but actually instead of if you didn't spend like 100% of energy getting that extra tenner versus, you know, having some capacity and and exploring some other avenues, which I think will probably lead to bigger things. Um, you know, without going into details, we've had some things like that recently where I am now where some, some doors have closed and, you know, actually moments later, a bigger door opens right. and it and we didn't, we didn't hound and chase down the other door. And, and I think it was the right thing to do. So I think you shouldn't be afraid to walk away from something you know like your Dyson salesman saying if it's not if it's not right it's not right you shouldn't you shouldn't buy it just because I'm here and mm. you shouldn't buy ice from me if you are surrounded by it
0: yeah no oh, that's fantastic well we've run out of 20ps in the arcade oh. so it's game over uh, <laughs> and I really appreciate you joining me um thanks very much Ian uh, look forward no problem to absolute to the, pleasure look maybe forward to doing a um a slightly less good sequel in the future
1: Oh, I look forward to it. It'll be amazing. It'll be much better. It'll be brilliant. We'll bring back some old characters. We'll both talk about geese. It'll be awesome. Thanks so much.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Ian.